Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. All right, welcome to our Monday Scramble. Uh, let me tell you what's coming up in uh, subsequent segments. Um, there's a way in which some of this stuff kind of joins together. In our second segment today, we're going to talk to um, Supreme Court writer Dahlia Lithwick, who had an interesting piece about the way in which the kind of wacky, paranoid scare down in Texas um, about Operation Jade Helm 15, which is supposedly, you know, this plot to, uh, to militarize Texas uh, and maybe perpetuate the Obama administration and, and who knows what, has some kinship, in, at least in terms of American distrust of militarization, with what's gone on in Ferguson and what's gone on in Baltimore. That, uh, although they're very different things and they have much very, very different levels of trueness, shall we say. Um, there's some uh, interesting underlying attitudes there. And then in the final segment, we are going to talk to um, a cartoonist from the Washington Post about the ongoing questions regarding the drawing of the po- Prophet Muhammad, uh, post-Garland, post-Charlie Hebdo, uh, post-Saturday Night Live this weekend. But we're going to start with Doug Glanville. Doug Glanville is here. He's an ESPN baseball analyst, uh, an author, uh, a writer for the New York Times, uh, and uh, the inventor uh, of the term shoveling while black. Uh, did you actually invent that term, or did somebody else? In, uh, my, my wife. <laughs> my wife. So um, most people know this story, but uh, you, you're probably bored with telling it, but give people the 30, 40-second version of it. Well, uh, it was about a year ago in, in the winter, and I was just outside. I think we had a bunch of snow days from school, and I was just shoveling my driveway. It was probably 3 o'clock, some middle of the day. And, uh, you know, I was— Looking, and all of a sudden, an officer. Now I'm in Hartford, so I live one block east of the border of Prospect. And an officer from West Hartford police drove across the street. You know, just pulled up, and he's kind of in his cruiser for a minute. And I kept reading the sign, like West Hartford, strange. But and he eventually got out, approached me on my driveway, and the only thing he said was, "So you're trying to make a couple extra bucks shoveling people's driveway around here?" And that was that was the intro. So I. Eventually, was like, well, no, this is my house. This is my driveway. And then, uh, you know, small talk. I tried to just sort of diffuse it and eventually just said happy shoveling and, and took off. So that was sort of what led to uh, a lot of things, articles and conversations. Right. Led to an article in The Atlantic, led to a kind of a national conversation, uh, led to a bill that's in the state legislature right now. Um, And we should sort of say by way of subtext, although there's sort of two different stories that have been told about this. But so the West Harvard police have told sort of the initial story was that there was a guy shoveling snow on the other side of the line and there's a municipal ordinance against that, uh, against going door to door soliciting work. There had been some reports, some complaints that this officer had gone looking for him and had ventured across the city line. And then a later story told that this guy actually had a bad encounter with uh, uh, with somebody that he didn't finish the job, and then he came back later and was knocking on the door of some elderly woman or something, uh, and that they were specifically looking for him about that. Um, I don't know. Wh- wh- does it make any difference to you which one of those stories is true? Well, it, it, from the standpoint of where we're going from here, it's not as as significant. I think the main thing... Is you know, and there's dispute about the ordinance. The ordinance, uh, from what I understand, is, applies to the sale of goods and merchandise. It does not explicitly outline services. So that's a whole other conversation that's been discussed. But I think the main thing 
you know, stemming from the experience is about jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. It's about jurisdiction. And so, yes, there could be a suspicious character. There could be all these things. But do you have the right and the power and the authority to cross town lines to enforce law, engage citizens, pursue suspects? I think that's that's the driving point about rules of engagement. And so that's what we've kind of learned in discussing this in certainly the last year, a lot of research, a lot of wonderful people have really engaged the conversation. And I think the where it came down to was about jurisdiction. So is, this is the this is the part of this problem, at least for starters, that you have broken off uh, and tried to deal with. You and your state representative, Matt Ritter, you proposed a bill uh, that would clarify once again that for the sake of, in, of enforcing municipal ordinances, police should not be crossing uh, town lines. Why is that important? In other words, you could have you could just as easily have looked for a bill to raise that would have gotten very specifically into racial profiling. Why did you pick the thing that you picked? Well, this is the work of our state representative Matt Ritter. I, I thought, and looking at it in retrospect, I saw how elegantly crafted it, it was because mm-hmm. there, um, the the laws that govern this type of exchange were were clear on one level. Right, it says that unless you're in immediate pursuit of someone you have the authority to arrest in your town. So you've witnessed it, and the case law seems to support you know, misdemeanors or higher kind of level. Uh, then, Or your reason to suspect this person had committed a felony. Mm. Those are the cases you can cross town lines. And uh, so when we looked at it in greater detail, you know, Representative Ritter said, well, let's get into the municipal ordinance. Like, because you can imagine the converse, right? If you are West Hartford or any town, Officers from all kind of precincts could be driving all over the state, crossing lines, saying, well, this guy spit on the sidewalk or whatever ordinance violation there could be. That is mass chaos. Mm. So, you know, he said, well, maybe we need to identify. And he he believes strongly that the municipal ordinance aspect of this is where the microaggressions and concerns start to to, to sort of raise its head. Mm. Because what happens is you have these are reasons or pretexts to engage citizens. Right. You have a, a law. And now it's spilled over into Hartford or other towns. And now you're kind of saying, well, this is how I had the right to engage you. And this bill sort of establishes those parameters. Um, this is only a tangentially connected thing, uh, but uh, I, I, I think it's so amazing that you have to tell it. Um, the something you told me a few months ago, which is that uh, after your shoveling while black incident, one way that you adjusted was to get a snowblower. Uh, and that made it really hard to go through. Tell, tell the airport story. This is amazing. So, right. so, all right. So, of course, I'm like, all right, I'm not shoveling. So I, I go get a snowblower. Now, the humor in me thought about sending the bill to the West Hartford Police Department, <laughs> which I don't think they would have taken well. But I, um, so I snowblow and I get, I fill up the gas tank. And on two different occasions, it snowed. I shoveled, I, I'm sorry, I snowblow, snowblowed in the morning and I had to catch a flight later that day. And in both cases, I got randomly pulled out of the line at TSA for, for the hand test that they do. And I failed both times because I had gasoline on my hand. Mm-hmm. So I was detained twice at Hartford Bradley, uh, pulled aside because, so I just de- decided in the great state of Connecticut, apparently I'm not supposed to clear snow in my own driveway. No, just let it, just buy some snowshoes or skis or something like that. Um, that is the solution. So we should say that, well, first of all, this whole story started in February of 2014. So many things have happened since then. Yes. I mean, Ferguson, in all of its different manifestations, had not happened. We, nobody knew the names Eric Garner uh, or, or Tamar Rice or uh, nobody knew about North Charleston. Nobody knew about... Um, 
Well, nobody knew about Baltimore, which is, in fact, you're, you're, you, Baltimore's on your mind today anyway because, yes. in fact, well, explain why. Well, the Orioles are having their first game back in Baltimore since they had to leave the area and play games on the road exclusively. So they're, uh, they're back in Baltimore for the first time. And, you know, this uh, for given your love of baseball and the fact that really, you know, of late you've just been thinking a lot about these issues and kind of going to school on them, that, that was an interesting collision of two things, that the, because of the Baltimore situation, uh, the Orioles played this one very eerie, weird game uh, with nobody in the stadium. I mean, how did you feel that day? Well, it was difficult. It was a very heavy feeling. I mean, like you said, the convergence of all these challenges, and it's hard because, you know, I look at my experience and I say, well, you try to figure out a solution that's collaborative. You try to find a way that's a bigger. But there's a huge issue here in this country, and, and it's, a, it's a distrust. It's a mistrust, law enforcement, citizens. And, the, and one thing that gets lost is this triangulation. You know, in fairness to the police, they're, they're responding to calls. So mm-hmm. sometimes who are people calling on? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a big issue, too. I mean, I, I just delivered uh, baseball equipment to a, a friend's house who is his, he's a parent on the team of one of the, the kids on the team. And I went— and I was nervous about dropping it off in his like West Hartford house and putting my bag. He said, he did, did he me, just yeah, go, he said, he go said, down the yeah, driveway in the garage. Yeah, go, and, to, yeah. go down the driveway and put it in the porch and go open my door. And I'm like, dude, no, like, <laughs> you know, it's so it's unfortunate. But I think that we we see what I call microaggressions, right? These these sort of jabs at you about what are you going to do about kind of things like it couldn't have been my house, you know, in this mm. particular case. But the convergence of all these issues, there's a criminalization of municipal law, I think, ties it together in certain respects, right? It's, uh, you know, because they could be looking for someone with municipal law, but then what they find from there could go anywhere and, and those type of exchanges. So I'm, I, believe, I believe this bill has a lot to do with peace. It's promoting peace because it's also safety for officers. You're in jurisdictions you're not familiar. You may not know the laws. You don't know the citizens. I think that there's a real risk for officers also. I was saying to you before the show, one of the things that you said to me earlier this year has really stayed with me and got me thinking about a lot, which is that, you know, police and I think many white citizens, too, make the assumption that any encounter between the police and a a citizen is probably a kind of a good thing. The police are there to to do good, to ask questions, to find out things, um, to, you know, to arrest lawbreakers, all these things. Um, And so the more the merrier, right? The more the better. The more times the police encounter citizens, the better off everybody is, uh, you know, on balance. Um, Whereas for people of color, an encounter between the police and them often is there's a list of things that can go wrong. Absolutely. And, and that's the concern. And this is there's real data, you know, real evidence of whether it's the percentages of how often someone African-American gets pulled over and traffic stops or whatever it may be. So, sure, there's there's concern. I was very nervous about like, OK, this officer is approaching me. I don't know. He's from another town completely. Uh, you know, that's a that's a negative. <laughs> mm-hmm. that, so the bill is trying to reduce and minimize police civilian contact and and especially when you're out of your jurisdiction and you're in unfamiliar territory which is ratcheting up the stress level you know and i think that that's important and community policing is what we discuss a lot so therefore if you're going to include surrounding towns as part of your jurisdiction then we need to take the time to learn those th- those communities what their laws are what their priorities are who lives where that's part of it i i remember going to the forum at the lob and Chief Esserman from New Haven made a point. He said, well, we put everybody on the beat. We, everybody has to go through a beat. And Shaquille O'Neal suggested that they do internships at the Boys and Girls Club, just learn different priorities, people's cultures, 
that's a collaborative solution that I think could be part of this. But I think you have to codify this. You need to make a clear line. This is the law. It's not appropriate. And no law enforcement agency out in the state would say it's okay for some other uh, jurisdiction or law enforcement body to just roll up in my town and, and detain citizens and not really communicate. I don't think anybody's okay with that. If West Hartford is surrounded by wherever, New Britain and all these other towns, could you imagine if Hartford police rolled up into West Hartford and detained a citizen for a municipal violation in Hartford in, in on Wallbridge or something? I, I just don't think it would have gone over well. And I think most people recognize that that's problematic. If And so to, to leave that precedent, if we don't inf- enact something, is very concerning statewide because you're giving license uh, to just be able to drive wherever and detain people of other communities. You know, uh, there's often a distinction between, made between talking the talk and walking the walk, and we tend to focus more or want to focus more on how people walk the wa- walk. What they do is more important than what they say. But, you know, I actually do feel as though in this case there's a real problem. You just used the word communication. There's a communication problem and an acknowledgement problem. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it... Um, and I know you've got something to say about it because you, you, you've told me about this before. But, I mean, even over the last few days, I've noticed you probably saw page one of the Hartford Current on Sunday, another deep analysis of what happens after traffic stops and what percentage of drivers of colors get tickets as a result of a traffic stop as opposed to people sent away with warnings. And there's a racial disparity there. And, you know, and they they interview the head of the Connecticut Chiefs, uh, Police Chiefs Association. And you know, he sort of says, well, there might be problems with the data. You have to look at all this stuff. At no point does he say, you know, you know, maybe we have a problem, you know, maybe. And, and today on Where We Live, there was a show about how police are trained and the two policemen who were on. I didn't hear the entire show, but I did ask afterwards. I was waiting for one of these two police chiefs or police spokesmen to say, maybe we have a problem. I mean, there might be a lot of other things people don't understand and mitigating factors. But, you know, I think actually we do have a problem. We need to address it. And it's it's hard to get the police to say that. It's very hard. And part of this is about restore. It's restorative. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's what's missing in this experience. Okay, fine. We have, whether it's an apology, whether it's sort of, it, it moves to an acknowledgement. Because, for example, one of the, at the hearing, my neighbor said, you know, I was at the first meeting and I was waiting for a real apology and it never came. It never came from law enforcement. Mm-hmm. And then there's an acknowledgement he was looking for to just say, you know what, we, we shouldn't have been there. Because if that was clear, then that means the, the statute is working. It's saying, Oh, wait, wait a minute. Is this a jurisdictional issue here? We know that. But but the fact that it was sort of justified later, sanctioned later, that sort of creates an issue. And it, it sort of makes it seem like there's the, the restorative potential of it goes away. And so you end up trying to make new laws. You try to clarify things and because you feel like there's a misunderstanding about the law. And the more discussion there is about the lack of clarity, the more it actually needs to happen. <laughs> so there's no question that you know, you, if you the collateral damage of people who are innocent, take stop and frisk, for example, all the innocent people that are stopped needs to be addressed. And unfortunately, it's disproportionately impacting people of color. And, and that reality has to change. And this is, I think, a, a step proactively that Connecticut can do. We're talking to Doug Glanville, a former baseball player, a currently revolutionary T-ball coach. It is T-ball. Is it T-ball? Yeah, <laughs> yes. yeah T-ball. Uh, and an ESPN analyst and author. So um, in the time that remains, you don't seem to me like me like the kind of person who dips a toe in and then pulls it back out. I assume you're with this issue uh, longer, that if this bill, which 
for better or worse, gets called the Doug Glanville bill every time right. it gets talked about. If the Glanville bill uh, gets passed, uh, where do you go now? What, do, what are you interested in next? I'm, I'm very interested in the criminalization of municipal law. I think it's you look at Ferguson and all the elements that are all connected on how municipal law affect people who cannot really – whether it's defend themselves or pay or all these reasons they get caught more into the system for things that are minor offenses. Mm-hmm. I'm very interested in that because, look, I could go through this process. I can be here at 1 o'clock in the afternoon because I work at night. I, I have options to do things. That's not reality for the vast majority of citizens. Let's take Hartford, who fit the description of me that day, mm-hmm. right, Who the brown coat, whatever. So I, I think that that is the access to the process is important. And when people are uh, under this situation where they get whether detained or even for municipal violations, they get an ordinance. All of a sudden now they could be stop and frisk. They get Fourth Amendments. They get searched. All of a sudden now they're in, they're facing jail time over minor offenses. I think that's so. That's the next step. My brother's keeper has been very um, you know connected to me, and uh, but really it's 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 way bigger than my experience. It's it's a uh, you know the country. There's a lot of parallels here. It's weird because, you know, in the area of criminal uh, justice reform, uh, one of the, the hot terms is diversion. Diversion is when somebody is arrested for a criminal defense, a criminal offense. But, you know, the, the system can figure out how to get them because they're, they're, it, it's really not warranted. Putting them, you know, on a track to incarceration doesn't make any sense. So you divert them. But it, you're talking about the opposite kind of diversion. Somebody who's arrested for or stopped for a municipal ordinance infraction but gradually because of missed fines or, or oh, whatever absolutely. else. Absolutely. And whether they failure to appear, failure, all these issues, whether it's financial or transportation related, that's that's the reality of people uh, for the vast majority. And, and Hartford, as you know, is a city that has these type of challenges. So uh, that's that's the bigger concern. So, I, yeah, I could, I could move. I could do a lot of things to just avoid the situation as much as possible. Obviously, it seems to follow us to some degree. But there's uh, the recourse that I may have is not the same. And so bigger than myself, it, this is what impacts uh, large people. Because you ask yourself, well, what would have happened that day if one of the gentlemen I paid to shovel my driveway was there? Mm-hmm. What happens if my son, who, whatever, when he's 18 years old, was in that driveway? I, you know, what happens then if he says a smart comment to the officer? What happens? Like, these are realities. And, and these are the conversations I have to have with my six, five, and three-year-old, quite frankly, on some level. You know, uh, you know, it's just, that. that's just, that's how it is. And it's unfortunate. I'd, I'd like to see a you know different dynamic, but I think this bill is a step and a good step that makes a clarification that moves things and moves the meter proactively for Connecticut. All right, Doug Glenville, Glenville I know you have to go. You're part of the coverage today of this uh, moment with the Baltimore Orioles coming back to their baseball stadium. Thanks for being with us, though. Colin, thanks for having All me. All right, we'll keep this conversation going in the months ahead. Got two more very interesting segments uh, coming up, so stay with us. Joining us right now is Dahlia Lithwick, who writes about the courts and the law for Slate. Uh, you also absolutely have to start subscribing to her podcast, Amicus. It's just like Serial, but at the appellate level. <laughs> One of the th- things that you've written about recently is Jade Helm 15, which is, of course, the very harmless sounding. See, that's one of the problems. If you're going to do a military exercise that you don't want people to be afraid of, you can't give it this Game of Thrones name, you know? <laughs> I think Fuzzy Bunny's 
14 was already taken. Yeah, <laughs> Operation Strawberry, something <laughs> like that. But anyway, it's Jade Helm, Helm 15. It's a training exercise. The governor of Texas, uh, Greg Abbott, announced that he would be ordering the Texas State Guard, which is different from the Texas Army National Guard, to monitor this training maneuver because there was this welling up of paranoia over it. Uh, the sense, well, I think mean, we can sort of sketch out some of the elements of the paranoia. I think most people followed this a little bit, but there might be part of some kind of government uh, operate maybe in an attempt to uh, enthrone President Obama for a third term. It could be something else. Walmart seemed to be involved. So first of all, I think the first thing we can say is there's nothing new under the sun. sun. And if you remember Hofstadter's you know, book about paranoia and American life, some of this stuff could have been happening in the 1960s. Right. I mean, I think this is a deeply entrenched, probably centuries old American mistrust of government, mistrust of too much authority, you know, the sense that if your government is armed and you're not armed, you're in trouble, per se. End of story. And I think you're right. That's baked into the American psyche. And so this happens to be a particularly wacky iteration of that paranoia. But this waves of this happen all the time. And then they're, of course, fanned and, and really chummed up by, you know, shock jocks and AM radio and the internet. And people really come to believe that these things are true and that it's coming and they have to arm up to prepare for it. Now, one of the things you explored in your piece is the question, something that we talk about a lot these days, too, which is if you push an essentially kind of left-wing argument as far as it can possibly go, and you push a right-wing argument as far as it can possibly go, um, sometimes they seem to meet around on the dark side of the moon. Or if not meet, come close. So one of the things you were exploring are parallels between some of the fears that people who might be either center or left of center have about the militarization of police, as we saw in Ferguson, or the general sense anyway that we are in a state, uh, we are kind of out of communion with our own American police force, and you know whether we're talking about Baltimore or Cleveland or Ferguson or the Eric Garner case, that there's something wrong right now. There's some idenic fall of our relationship with our own police force. That and this Texas thing. So there's some ways in which they're very similar and a lot of ways in which they're very different, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I think one doesn't want to overstate the similarities because there are real differences. And I think there's a, a race valence that goes on when you're talking about Ferguson or the piece, you know, I was writing contemporaneously with Baltimore. And so I think there is a race part of it that confounds the analogy a little bit. But I completely agree with what you're saying, which is if you think about the root concern and anxiety, both over Jade Helm and over all these sort of hyper-militarized police machines that are acting more like an army, there is a similar, a parallel anxiety. And what was interesting to me was the extent to which the events of Baltimore and Ferguson are invisible to the Jade Helm people. You know, that there's a way in which one could make common cause with people around the country who have similar anxieties, but we don't. We work really hard to erase events that don't map onto our particular cause. And to me, that was what was really fascinating was, I think, as you say, these far, far right paranoid conspiracy theorists in Texas have more in common with the folks who were upset about curfews and mass arrests and school, you know, harassment of school kids in Baltimore than not, but they will never cop to that. And I find that fascinating. Another thing that happens, you kind of alluded to it, and it's something that I have very creepy feelings about, which is I think another thing that happens is that people map what's happening or what they think is happening onto pop culture antecedents. So, you know, the people in Texas, I think it's going to 
Red Dawn and some other, you know, in the uh, the Purge, I guess is a uh, no. The Purge is Baltimore. I'm sorry, I mean, I'm getting my pop right. culture stuff. So th- that's like another thing that happens. It's kind of like, oh yes, we've seen this before. Yeah, you've seen it in a movie with actors in it, but the recognizability of it triggers a belief system, kind of. It's fascinating how folks in Baltimore absolutely hook, line, and sinker. Some of them saw this was the narrative of the Purge, and they saw it playing out, and they acted accordingly. And, you know, similarly, I think it's just so incredible to me that Chuck Norris, of all people, is inflaming this narrative in Texas about, you know, President Obama wants to come and take your guns, and, you know, there's abandoned Walmarts and these basement underground tunnels. And it's a narrative that you've heard so many times from these right-wing conspiracy theorists that you're right. It just sounds so familiar. It's, oh, yeah, it's coming true, but because it's always been true. And I find it really, really interesting that, again, in the absence of, you know, reality in Texas, instead of saying, hey, wait, there's a thing that's really alarming and similar that's happening when they're like rolling tanks through Ferguson, that should be familiar to us. But instead, that's invisible to us because we're too busy listening to Chuck Norris. And so it is, to me, really fascinating the ways that pop culture and particularly social media lead you to believe stories you already believed and to ignore stories that don't reinforce your pre-existing ideas, even though, as I say, I think there are some really important parallels that could be really useful if we wanted to have a meaningful conversation about militarized police or we wanted to have a meaningful conversation about the role that the military has come to play uh, in uh, the way we police ourselves in this country. But instead of doing that, we're all having our own fever dreams. The pushback against this is, and I was reading some of the comments in Slate. Slate, I have to say, by the way, Slate has pretty good comments. Oh, my God. The best. uh, Compared to many of the publications I write for, they're very good. But here's somebody who doesn't agree with you, and one of the points that he or she makes is one big difference is that Baltimore's really happening. And if you go out and demonstrate on the streets of Ferguson, Missouri, tanks will show up, or things that look a lot like tanks, you know, will show up. Whereas this thing in Texas is not really happening. So this person says, please don't ask us to strain our brains to try to think of rational ways that the similarities can be used to narrow the partisan divide. And there is some validity in that criticism, right, that uh, that it would be great if we could have a national bipartisan, bi-crazy conversation about the militarization of police and about things that make us sort of question the line that's put out to justify government authority. But it's also very hard to imagine getting these two groups of people to sit down for the reasons that you cite, because they're not interested in each other's problems. It seems unlikely that they're going to have a, a similar kind of conversation. Two things. One, I actually felt like I was pretty careful to write the piece from the presumption that Baltimore is really happening Mm -hmm. and that Ferguson really happened and that it was kind of the Fox News attempt to say that Baltimore was a fantasy or, you know, self-created that worried me. So I don't think I'm not completely willing to cop to the criticism that comparing something that's real to something that's not real means that Baltimore isn't real. Mm -hmm. I do think, however, that if you think about places where the right and left have worked past the crazy and sat down and talked to each other. And I'm thinking of prison reform. I'm thinking of drug policy reform. There are a lot of places where folks on the right and folks on the left, you know, have private prisons, have really looked past their own paradigms and narratives and said, hey, you know, we could make common cause with the other side. And so I do think, you know, what's fascinating to me, and I think at the very end of the piece, I at least flicked at the idea 
that I always believed that the Tea Party folks and the Occupy folks had more in common than they ever let themselves believe. Uh, and that there are some, I understand, defining concerns that are never going to be bridged. But I think that there are a lot of defining concerns that are bridgeable. And so it does seem to me that in this country where you see, particularly at a moment with huge partisan gridlock, nevertheless, folks coming together from the very far right and the very far left to say, we can't incarcerate everybody. We can't incarcerate people for minor drug infractions. And we're seeing, I think, real reform. So it simply seems to me, at, at the most basic level, you know, completely stipulating that the Jade, Jade Helm people may not be able to work through you know, their Chuck Norris issues and think this through. But it does seem to me as though a conversation about, do we really truly believe that every you know, weapon that comes back from Afghanistan and Iraq needs to be sold to a police department, we could have that conversation, I think, meaningfully, but it would just require, and this is what I think the nut of my article is, not making each other invisible. That's a great point. It seems to me the other thing that we need, though, and I don't know how we get there, is some kind of rational standard for evaluating claims. I feel as though we've kind of drifted into this post-Enlightenment moment. I mean, Karl Rove or whoever it was who sort of mocked Susskind or whoever it was who was mocked for being in the reality-based community, that prediction has kind of played out to a point where I find it very difficult these days to have a conversation that's evidence-based with somebody who doesn't want to agree with me. Um, this came up with the Religi Religious Freedom Restoration Act stuff where at one point our governor here in Connecticut, Dan Malloy, was criticizing Indiana, and all these people said, well, you have the same law. And so I mean, I pulled up the laws and I read them and they're different, you know. <laughs> and so I would say that. I would write pieces say, well, no, they are different. And the pushback you get is, that's just your opinion. Right. Well, no, it's not just my opinion here are the texts of the law. And they're different. And it seems to me right now, I mean, you could look at this situation and say, well, Alex Jones and Cy Hirsch sometimes sound a little bit alike. Cy Hirsch is right out there in the London Review of Books today with a counter-narrative about the death of Osama bin Laden, which essentially calls President Obama a liar, somebody who's, who has subscribed to a false narrative about how this happened. You know, if you're not reading too carefully, it doesn't sound that different from some kind of Alex Jones paranoia, the president's lying to you, he's going to take a third term, whatever. And I feel as though, in terms of public discourse, we're starting to not have a way to evaluate the differences in those claims or check any claim against empirical reality. I think that's right. And I think it's really exacerbated by the fact that when you're talking about these Hofstetter, you know, paranoid based tropes, then you're really right. I mean, there's no way to verify paranoia because the Alex Jones people and the Chuck Norris people keep saying, well, of course there's no proof. That's because the conspiracy is really, really good. And so I think it's really, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a problem of, you know, we have no facts. Everybody thinks that other people's facts are opinions. But I think it's really in situations like this where you're pushing the idea that there's a conspiracy it's always going to be the case that anyone who doesn't believe what you're saying is part of the conspiracy, and then it becomes almost impossible to have any kind of rational discussion. So I think that is just sort of baked in now to the way these conspiracy theorists work, and you never puncture that lack of reality. I think all I can say is, and I just say this as a journalist, you know, whenever I get into situations where people are saying, well, that's just your opinion, you know, all you can do is that's what links are for in my you know, you just try to find credible sources and say, you know, these are the facts. But I don't dispute anything you're saying. I think that one of the 
problems we're really having right now is that when you look at someone like Rand Paul or someone like Ted Cruz or someone like Greg Abbott in Texas who have, you know, serious elected positions, you know, and are credible people and they're buying into the Jade Helm stuff. You know, I think it's not just an absence of facts. I think that's part of it, but it's an absence of responsibility. And I think you probably saw there was a a former member of the Texas delegation who wrote a note to Greg Abbott just calling him out for supporting the Jade Helm theorists. And, you know, one of the lines that really struck me was, you were once a judge. You know, Mm -hmm. you... Facts have to matter to people in responsible positions. And I think what worries me, in addition to kind of the lack of congruence between opinion and fact, is that people in serious positions of authority who have real obligations, I think, to mitigate the crazy, leap into the crazy without any reservation, then that scares me almost more than the discourse on the ground. That's one thing. You're always going to have Alex Jones. But when I think Greg Abbott is reinforcing that there's truth there, that is super, super terrifying. I think you're right. And I think also that it's right in a climate, in an environment where increasingly people who are bewildered by these thickets of facts and, I mean, links that they can click to that they either trust or that they don't trust, they, they turn to people as a result. Not for nothing has the name Chuck Norris come up a couple of times in this conversation. I mean, not that there's any particular reason to trust Chuck Norris about a political narrative or a paramilitary narrative, but people do anyway. And I think people do make personality-based decisions on this, or at least track record-based decisions on it. You know, do I trust Seymour Hirsch? You know, well, I'll decide that based on what I know about his previous work, about his career, how much I'm willing to go with him uh, on what he's saying about the, the killing of, of Osama bin Laden. And people sort of sign up with Alex Jones or Chuck Norris or Seymour Hirsch or with Dahlia Lithwick because they either believe or don't believe these people because they don't know what else to believe. I think it's that, and I think I would go one further and say we live in such a world of kind of reinforced bubbles of truth, right? What the philosophers called epistemic closure, where anything that doesn't sound true to your experience isn't true. And so I think it's not even just like, I'm going to choose to believe Chuck Norris, I'm going to choose to believe uh, Cy Hirsch. I think, and this is really, I felt, undergirding what I was trying to write about Baltimore. I think that our capacity to say that anything that doesn't resonate with my story, with my experience, is simply untrue, has been really, really inflamed by the internet and social media and the polarized media that we have. So I think it's not even that we pick our experts and we say, oh, if Chuck Norris says it's true, it's true. I think that when you are a guy in Texas who doesn't have a lot of contact with poor African Americans mm-hmm. and you hear about, quote, rioting in Baltimore, that just means nothing to you. And you don't make the sort of empathetic or imaginative leap to say, hey, what would it be like, you know, if there was a curfew for no reason or if Freddie Gray were, you know, executed in the back of a police van without explanation. So I think it's the dismissing or erasing of narratives that don't affirm our own worldview that is almost more pernicious than picking our own experts. I picked uh, Dahlia Lithwick as my (laughs) expert, and so I listened to Amicus, which everybody else should do. It's a great podcast about the Supreme Court. Read her writing in Slate magazine. Buy her vast line of vitamin products, um, (laughs) and you will live forever. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dahlia. Thank you for having me, Colin. Okay, bye-bye. Today's show was produced by Tucker Ives and me, Kion Wolf. Greg Hill tweets for us at WNPR Colin, and Katie Tularski is our executive producer. 
The part of Bill Curry was played by Chuck Norris. For show pages, articles, and copies of the Faith Middleton Show's daft secret plan to steal all the barbecue in Texas, visit our website, wntr.org slash Colin. On tomorrow's show, history as told through fiascos. And now, back to Colin. Over the weekend, Saturday Night Live tackled the notion of drawing the Prophet Muhammad in a sketch which we would happily play for you, except that it's so visually oriented, I don't think that it would come across very well uh, on the radio. But it's sort of part of a wave of attempts by satirists and humorists to deal with the latest iteration, sort of post-Charlie Hebdo, maybe even a little bit post-Garland, Texas, with this whole question of drawing the Prophet Muhammad. Joining us right now is Michael Kavna. He's a cartoonist and columnist who writes the Comic Riffs blog for the Washington Post. This is something that you've been monitoring. You've written a lot about it in the past. And so maybe we can start with the Saturday Saturday Night Live sketch. It's based on the idea that everybody's on some kind of quiz show or a game show that turns on the ability of contestants to draw something. They're given a clue, a prompt, and they have to draw it well enough so that their partners on the game show know what it is. Bobby Monaghan is given the clue or prompt, the Prophet Muhammad, and he's terrified to draw it. So uh, unpack this a little bit for us, Michael. What did you see going on there? in this in the sketch i actually thought it was the best sketch of the night i will say that first of all because i've interviewed james downey before he's been uh i don't know if he wrote this particular sketch but we he and i have talked for hours about he uh his writing of most of the political sketches uh-huh. uh, over 40 years he's been there and you'll remember like michael dukakis sketch and other things with john lovitz and Saturday Night libel will say gets more credit for satire than sometimes just topical and political humor. A lot of what it does isn't truly satirical. But here, without evoking a political character, a cartoonist, a prophet, visually, it was, I felt, true satire because it is this sense of, after, in the wake of Garland, uh, the latest event uh, in terms of, you know, this long, I would say this decade-long particular timeline that goes back to the Danish what I, when I spoke to Fleming Rose, the Danish editor last year, what he calls the Mohammed cartoon crisis, and he attributes that to actually the flare-out effect across countries of a couple hundred deaths, in his own word, if you count sort of the full wake. So within that, what you have in America on our shores now, as we deal with it, is Bobby Moynihan and later I believe it was Keenan Thompson, two of the most lovable character actors on the show, sketch players, you know, they both exude this warmth. So to have them do the sort of large-eyed fear and apprehension uh, that we can relate to in the middle of this charades game that feels like the latest Jimmy Fallon charade-type game, which kind of closes the SNL circle, it really pointed to Bobby Moynihan, his hand was almost shaking just to put pen to pad. I think what, what we could kind of unpack a little more, if you want to, is the range of cartoonists I've interviewed. So this isn't a cartoonist line that's playing. It's just a guy with a pen. But it speaks to where we are in 2015, that the level of apprehension about this. Reading some of your work uh, and, and seeing some of the cartoons that you've showcased and some of the interviews that you've done with cartoonists, I mean, it's, first of all, it's interesting that cartoonists are kind of 
all over the map, right? I mean, mm-hmm. from from yeah. Gary Trudeau, who's probably the most celebratedly critical of Charlie Hebdo anyway, although yeah. Trudeau did his own version of the kind of absurdity or undesirability of being forced to have the Prophet Muhammad appear in your cartoon strip. So sort of from there to maybe Jack Oman or somebody like that who's saying, no, this is what the First Amendment is all about. Let's do this and take our lumps. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, the timeline here, what, what we have is a wave. It's a cresting wave. You know, the, you go back to the Danish cartoon crisis of 2006. You have in the wake of that several years later, South Park attempting to, and they, they had federalized Muhammad before, but that was uh, ahead of the, of the 2006 events. What you have is late subsequently when South Park tries to depict and satirize Muhammad and Comedy Central editing it, and the South Park creators spoke out, Parker and Stone, what you got was Molly Norris in 2010, a small, a relatively small-time freelancer, saying, hey, let's do everybody draw Muhammad Day, and that kicked off something she quickly distanced herself from within a matter of days. I talked to her two or three days after she posted that, but it had gone viral and soon globally viral. And five years ago, next, I think next week, May 20th, is the fifth-year anniversary of Everybody Draw Muhammad Day. So where that gets us to is, uh, and of course, in 2011, we had the firebombing at Charlie Hebdo, and I wrote at the time, the headline, I fear, I wrote this four years ago, was a Charlie Hebdo cartoonist done down, or shot, I didn't say death, I just said shot over a cartoon, a Muhammad cartoon. And, and darkly, we got there. And where that brings us up now is, well, I'll say in 2010, I talked to dozens of political cartoonists in this country. Many of them, roughly 20 Pulitzer winners, had signed a petition in support of South Park at that time. We saw a range. So when Everybody Draw Muhammad Day came around five years ago, I talked to a range of cartoonists. Most of them did not participate in Everybody Draw Muhammad Day. The official statement from the president of the Association of American Editorial Cartoonists said, look, we don't want to participate in an event that we feel like can be hijacked, that other meaning can be put upon it. One exception was Mark Fiore, the Pulitzer winner who uh, does animations, does a lot of work for SF Gate, associated with SF Chronicle. He depicted Muhammad five years ago in his animation, so he, he was out there. That hasn't changed, that disparity to me, so much five years later. There is a sense of unity with Ebdo. Trudeau did a cartoon expressing unity with Ebdo, which gets forgotten because a lot of his statements got tweeted out and parsed from his George Polk speech last month. But what I will say is the range, when I ask people, how, where are your own red lines? Where or do you agree with Trudeau or not? I had cartoonists I'd consider very right-leaning saying I agree with him, some to the left saying I agree, and many saying no. I, I, you know, I think there's an element of too soon. I think right now we have attended the, a figurative funeral of the Charlie Hebdo cartoonist, the Je suis Charlie spirit. The thing is we are still, at least as cartoonists in this community, it's still a shock. We're still kind of at the wake as a collective group. And if you speak ill of the dead at the wake, you got to be careful. It has to be uh, almost a black humor, and I think that's part of the element here. I think if some of these comments were coming within a year, it's different. But as Will Kane said on the Bill Maher show just several days ago on Friday, he said, if not now, when, while the bodies are still warm, I'm paraphrasing, 
but that is why. So cartoonists, these are our brethren, even across the shores. So that is part of the emotion that underlies all of their sentiment and emotion tied to what we know to hold dear about the First Amendment. Although I do want to say, I mean, first of all, inside every satirist are two kind of warring factions. One of them is the degree, to, is the desire to get the funniest thing you can do, right? Uh, you know, you want to make people laugh. I mean, that's why you pick satire instead of straight commentary. You want to be really funny. And then you also want to make a point. And sometimes yeah. one of them comes a little bit at the expense of the other. So at the end of the SNL sketch, and I would also say some of the very funny cartoons that you kind of anthology on your column, I'm not really left with very much of anything. You know, I mean, I'm left with the idea that, yes, isn't this an absurd situation when cuddly Bobby Monaghan is frozen with this pen in his hand? He doesn't dare draw this thing and he could win a million dollars if he could draw the Prophet Muhammad, but he can't. So isn't that an absurd situation? And and you you did, as I say, anthologize some other cartoons that kind of did the same thing. Like, here's what we have, you know, here's the mess we're in. You know, what would happen if a cartoonist wanted to draw the Prophet Muhammad? wow, this crazy or very funny thing would happen. And I thought that they were funny without necessarily landing anywhere. In other words, the, the SNL thing doesn't really land anywhere. It doesn't really say, no, this is the First Amendment. It's worth fighting for. It's worth dying for. John Adams didn't think this was going to be easy, and it's not, and we should learn to live with that. Or this thing gets so easily into the Pam Geller area of needlessly you know, drawing a, a stick along the bars of a lion's cage for no real reason other than to be provocative and to, to bait the radicals, that it really needs to be rethought. It seems to me a lot of the stuff that I've seen doesn't really go in one or the other of those directions. Part of it is because this is now played out as, since the January 7th Ebdo massacre. It's, it's now playing out after over months. And cartoonists don't want to just keep necessarily repeating themselves, but what we saw right after the massacre was that sense of unity. But within that, what we saw was, like uh, my post-colleague Ann Telmes, herself a Pulitzer winner, she held up a pen, and she was holding a previous copy of Charlie Hebdo, one from several years ago, that I believe was the all-Muhammad issue that helped precipitate the firebombing, many believe. So you do have cartoonists out there completely for free speech, being very vocal, and and there's a strong point. What I was anthologizing today was sort of this particular week after Garland, this sense of where are we at. And I think there it's just responding to a culture of fear, because I think the next thing many cartoonists fear, even personally, uh, you know, it's just because we've now seen terror over Muhammad cartoons on other shores, Molly Norris is living, you know, the FBI's guidance still five years later under an assumed name. Last I spoke with her four years ago and is out there. But she's the only one who has had her life turned upside down in this country, as far as I know, the only cartoonist by these events. And, of course, the the fear would be that there will be some terror exacted here, like what was attempted at Garland, if they're able to penetrate this event or you have some other incident that's akin to the way anthrax was nailed years ago. I think that's the fear. So what you're seeing, I think, is a lot of cartoonists processing step-by-step as we go through this. They're drawing what they're feeling and seeing and what the latest event is, and that includes the Penn America Center. I talked to Art Spiegelman, Neil Gaiman, other Alison Bechdel, Gene Yang, uh, other cartoonists about those events and, and 
you know, you may get to that point at some point, but about the 200 writers yeah. who said, no, 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 no Courage Award, and uh, and many cartoonists saying, if this isn't, if not for Courage, what? Even if you don't agree with the content of the cartoons. So we're processing it as a community, as a culture, as, as, as a nation to some degree, where we're at. So I think you're seeing that reflected in interstitial cartoons. But if you look at the long arc, you can find many sharp satiric points. No, I, I agree with that, too. I mean, we did a um, our, our Friday culture conversation here on this show. The knows we did a conversation about Penn and Charlie Hebdo two Fridays ago. And yeah. to an unusual degree, all of the panelists sort of said, I am uncomfortable with whatever position I wind up taking here. You know, I'm not 100 percent comfortable. It, it, as, as I wrote uh, the day after the Hebdo uh, massacre, what, the thrust of my piece was speaking as a cartoonist myself. Every cartoonist has to draw his or her own red lines, even if they don't call them red lines. We draw our own lines of engagement. We figure them out over time. Some cartoonists will never deal with religion at all. I've talked to several cartoonists who say, I will never draw anyone's profit. Right. You, you talked to one cartoonist who said, I was very upset about the pedophilia scandal. I'm practicing Catholic, but and yeah. I, I was very upset about the pedophilia scandal, but I wouldn't play that out with the drawing of Jesus. Yeah. I remember years ago, the late Doug Marlette, another Pulitzer winner, a great editorial cartoonist, when he was going after uh, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker because they were, you know, he is a Christian himself. He felt very close to what they were doing. Is He felt especially inspired to criticize what they were doing from, he felt, a place of biblical knowledge. So he would actually draw Christ in the cartoons. There was no satirization of Christ. If anything, Christ was being used to reflect back on what the bakers were doing. But I've talked to other cartoonists who would never even visually draw anyone's profit. Not that they personally find it necessarily blasphemous, but it's an area they don't want to go in. But another thing I'll say is cartoonists who have their own belief system, spiritual belief systems in general, I would say, approach this differently from cartoonists who have and other satirists who say they're secular, purely secular or atheist. You know, I've interviewed Bill Maher uh, at length after a show and several interviews. He says as someone who's secular, he's more the type that everything is fair game. And that that's a different type of satirist. Uh, Michael Kavna, thank you so much for talking to us today. This, as you say, is a conversation that will go on and on. Michael Kavna, cartoonist and columnist, writes the comic Riffs blog for The Washington Post. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much, Colin. That's The Scramble for today. Uh, We'll be back tomorrow with a show about, I have no idea what tomorrow's show is about. Oh, a show about misfortunes and tragedies and how they can be a way of defining and understanding history. Thanks to Tucker Ives and everybody else who helped out with today's show. 